All right, welcome everybody. Week three. Um, last week, for those of you guys who were here, this will be reviewed. For those of you who are not, we talked specifically about um, how the Garden of Eden is really like the pattern and the prototype for God's kingdom. That God's whole purpose is to bring his kingdom to consummation. That's why he created everything. That's why we have the progression of history. Um, and so uh, what God does in the garden, he establishes this kingdom. We talked about Adam's role. How Adam was a priest and a prophet and a king. Um, Neil, do you guys need outlines? Yeah. Yes, of course. There's plenty there. Um, and yeah, and Elizabeth, I'm sorry, I actually didn't have your email, just like you didn't have my address, so I will get you guys the uh, the outlines from the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Anyone else? Did you yeah, anyone else need one? Anyone else need one? Nope, we're good to go. Thank you. Yeah. I think Dom is coming, so if there's one left, that's perfect. Um, so tonight we're going to stay in the garden. We're actually going to talk about the covenant itself. So this class is called Covenant and Kingdom. Last week we talked a little bit about the kingdom stuff. Tonight we're going to focus a little bit more on the covenant in the garden, but they're both so intertwined. So a lot of what you hear tonight is going to be familiar from last week. You're going to, you know, we'll we'll be going over some of the same stuff. So let me open up in prayer and we'll get started. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together with your people around your word, Lord. Uh, We pray that it would never get old for us, Lord, that we would never get tired of being reminded of the things that we know so well. And additionally, Lord, that we would never get lazy in digging deeper and deeper into scripture to try to discover more of your revelation of yourself and of your purposes. Lord, we thank you that you are building your kingdom through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord God, for all the work that you're doing, and we thank you so much that you have called us and employed us to to share in this work. And so we ask that we would do so faithfully, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so tonight we're going to be um, in Genesis 3. You go ahead. Okay. Um, we're going to be looking at Genesis 3 tonight. Really, you know, all of, you know, we're going to be looking back at parts of Genesis 2 that we read last week, um, but focusing more on the third chapter. So we're going to read the whole chapter. So if you guys want to read along with me. Uh, Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. 
and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the, of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me, uh, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire to be should, I'm sorry. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat it and live forever, therefore... The Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard <clears throat> the way to the tree of life. Oh, my I know in the third chapter is my favorite. I knew about anyone. I knew it okay. before. Yep. Now I know it. Yep. Um, so like I said, last week we were especially focused in on kind of the special nature of the Garden of Eden. Remember we talked about how it was a special temple where God was present and how it has some of the temple imagery that we see later in scripture. And we also talked about how the garden specifically was a kingdom that Adam was made king over and Adam was charged to extend the borders of that kingdom uh, by you know, subduing the earth. Right. And so uh, today, like I said, we're going to talk specifically about the covenant and specifically, too, about Adam's failure um, and really why that's so important to us. Even to this day, you know, last week we started to mention the ways that Adam failed and his responsibilities. Um, Tonight, we're really going to talk about the importance of that. And in order to understand that, we need to understand the covenant that God has with Adam. Um, and uh, just the fact that that still has ramifications down to this day. And so uh, this covenant we call the covenant of life 
It's also sometimes called the covenant of works, but I don't like that term as much. Um, I think that term's confusing. There's nothing wrong with it. I just think it's confusing. So we'll call it the covenant of life. Plenty of good theologians call it that. So we're in good company. Um, Now, there are some theologians who are solid, fine enough, who deny that there's any covenant here between God and Adam. They deny that God and Adam's relationship is covenantal. And they'll say things like, well, the word covenant doesn't show up in this narrative. Um, But for us, I mean... We believe in the Trinity, right? Even though the word Trinity is never found in the Bible, but the concept is clearly there. And so we're going to argue tonight that the concept of a covenant is clearly here in Genesis, uh, the first early chapters with Adam, even if the explicit word is not there. Uh, Some others will say there's no covenant because there's no actual bloodshed. Uh, There are some theologians who believe that unless there is actually uh, a seal of bloodshed, there's no covenant. Um, however, as we talked about back in week one when we were doing all our definitions, there doesn't have to be actual bloodshed for there to be a covenant. There just needs to be the threat of it, right? There has to be those sanctions. There's a penalty if you break it. And so the threat is there, but there doesn't actually have to be the bloodshed uh, for there to be a covenant. And really, what we're talking about tonight and the existence of this covenant with Adam depends uh, very much on the distinction between what was the natural obligations of Adam and what was uh, additional to those natural obligations. So if you remember in week one, we mentioned that all of creation, by its existence, owes God obedience. All of creation needs to follow God's law. So even nature, when the sun rises and sets, it is following God's law. It's doing what God commanded it to do. Um, you know, when the waves crash, you know, because of the gravity from the moon, all of that, all of the natural world following in its natural order is creation obeying the law of God. And for man, with Adam and his creation, the obligation was the same. Adam, as created in the image of God, was to mirror God's work in creating and sustaining, and he was to mirror God's character by perfect obedience to the moral law. And God would owe Adam nothing for doing that. Adam had to do that as a creature of God and was owed no reward, nothing like that. So does that make sense so far? Um But as we saw last week, especially when we talked about some of Adam's duties in the garden, like to guard the holy presence of God, or we talked last week about Adam's obligation to exercise that kingdom dominion um, and to uh, extend the borders of Eden, uh, to, to execute the right judgment of God. What's going on, guys? Come on in. Have an outline. Thank you, thank you. Yep. Um, so some of those things that we talked about um, that Adam was compelled to do in the garden as a priest and a prophet and a king of God, 
those go, they're rooted in the creation law. They're rooted in, man, in man's natural obligations, but they go a little bit beyond them. It's additional requirements, and for those, God promised a reward. And we'll talk, get deep, more deeply into this as we go through tonight. I'm just kind of laying the, giving you guys the lay of the land that we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, and kind of reminding you of some of the themes we brought up last week. So remember, last week we talked about the uh, the purpose of Adam being a king was to uh, bring the kingdom to consummation, receive the eternal Sabbath rest that God had promised him as a reward. So those things um, are all sort of additional and uh, on top of Adam's natural obligations of um, of being a creature made in God's image. And so if we're making the case that there really is a covenant that God made with Adam in the Garden of Eden, um, then we have to remember back to week one, our definition of covenant. So if you guys remember, we define covenant very simply as a commitment guaranteed by a solemn oath with threat of divine sanctions that includes the delegation of dominion, precepts, promises, sanctions, and federal headship. Um, So that's a real simple definition of what a covenant is. And so as we go through tonight, we just want to point out that God's relationship with Adam in the garden fits this description. It fits this definition. And because of that, that has radical consequences for the rest of the redemptive history throughout Scripture and uh, consequences for us down to our day. So the first thing, the first kind of requirement, and I even hesitate to say requirement because you guys remember what I said back at the beginning, that we have to be very careful that we don't let kind of like a system that we create, say, okay, this is what a covenant is, this is what covenant theology is, and then make everything fit into that system. Um, But generally, these are the things that are included in the covenant. So the first thing, delegation of dominion. And we're just going to touch on this briefly um, because we really talked at length about this last week, that Adam uh, was made king over all creation and especially in the realm of Eden, Adam was made king. Um, We mentioned he was tasked with expanding its borders, subduing all the earth, making the whole earth a holy temple, a kingdom to God. And he was to do this under God's authority. So God delegated authority to Adam. It wasn't as if Adam, you know, God gave this authority to Adam and Adam could do whatever he wanted. He had to act in accord with God's law, um, and he would have to give an account to God for how he exercised that authority, ruling on God's behalf underneath him. Now, it's going to be important for us that Adam's responsibility was delegated and was under God. And even um, when God placed the limitation on Adam, when God said to him, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, that forced Adam to explicitly recognize the limitations of his authority. Hey, Leo, can you go sit over with your parents, please, my man? Thank you. 
So when God placed that limitation on Adam in the garden, it forced Adam to recognize that his authority was limited, that he couldn't uh, just you know, do whatever he wanted to do. He had to work within the confines of God's law. Does all this make sense? Feel free to stop me and ask questions if you guys have to. Um, but so, so initially you have the delegation of dominion. Adam is given authority in the earth, especially in Eden, and he's tasked to exercise that under God. And like I said, we talked a lot about that last week. So if you guys need to go back and listen to that one again or take a look at the outline, uh, you'll get more on that. Um, what I want to more focus on, especially, are the other aspects of this covenant. So you have the delegation of dominion. Then you have precepts. Precepts just are the covenant law. It's just uh, the you know, what is required of the covenanter. And so, the, you know, we said that covenants are really, they're like, I will, you will arrangements between God and man. The precepts are the you will. It's man's responsibility before God in the covenant arrangement. Now, this is where the distinction between the moral creation law and um, the kind of special covenant law that God gave to Adam really becomes important because some people would say that the covenant of life, um, God's covenant in creation was simply the moral law, that it was the Ten Commandments, that Adam had to perfectly obey the moral law, keep the Ten Commandments, and if he did that, then he would get the reward. But again, um, remember that Adam always by nature, by his mere existence, being made in God's image, was required to keep the moral law. There's nothing special or above and beyond about that, nothing that uh, can earn him anything. And furthermore, Adam was able to do this because Adam was not fallen. His conscience perfectly testified to what the law of God was. It was just his duty. He would receive no reward for doing it. But the actual precepts of the covenant, the covenant law, those come in the form of what we can call positive law, um, which is, again, law that goes above the universal moral law. A good example of this, and we'll talk way more about this later when we get to Abraham, but a good example is circumcision. You know that you know God gave the command to Abraham to circumcise his children, but circumcision itself, there's nothing inherently good or bad about it. There's nothing inherently good or evil or virtuous about circumcision. But when God said to Abraham, you must do this, then it became sinful for Abraham to not do it. Um, same thing we could say about the dietary laws in Egypt. There's nothing inherently sinful about eating pork. But when God said to the, uh, the, the Israelites, you can't eat that, all of a sudden now it's sinful for them to eat that. That's what we mean by positive law. It goes above the moral law, even if it may be rooted in it. And so when we talk about the arrangement between God and Adam in the Garden of Eden, um, the positive covenant law, first of all, you have Adam's obligations that we talked about last week. We're not going to go all the way back through them. His priestly work, guard the holy temple of God. His kingly work, exercise dominion. Those are things 
um, that were specifically covenantal, and especially his work as king in conquering the enemy of God. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But Adam has this encounter with Satan, and his covenant obligation is to conquer this enemy on the authority of God, um, or I should, I should say by the authority of God on behalf of God. And so again, you see these covenant obligations, they're rooted in the moral law, right? They have a moral dimension to them, but they do go beyond it. They're not identical to it. And the reason why I'm kind of laboring this point and want you guys to see this distinction, it becomes more clear in the other covenants, the kind of the difference of the two laws. But the reason why we have to see this is to understand that the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, right, that that was never a way for man to earn eternal life. That was never the purpose of them because it's really tempting. Sometimes we get to Exodus and we get to the uh, covenant with Moses and some people say, well, when the Israelites said, all this law that you've spoken, we will keep there, they were signing up and saying that we're going to obey the law to earn life. But Paul tells us the law was never intended to bring people to eternal life. And so we have to make that distinction right here from the beginning. Adam had to keep the moral law of God, but there was no reward attached to it. Keeping the law has never been God's way of bringing his people to eternal life. Here, Nathan, do you want to sit in this chair? Yeah. Here, let me um, let me move it over to where you're at. You don't want to. You can just go to the car and get a cushion. That's okay. Okay. That's okay. You sit here. I'll take this chair. Yeah. You know, these chairs get hard to sit in after a little while. Oh, oh, he has no natural cushion. Yeah. It's all good. It's all good. Oh, yeah, because... Shh. Yeah, that's all. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. Because you're too skinny. That's all good, guys. Yeah. Skinny. Yeah. Um, so, like I said, this distinction is going to become important um, later on, especially. But it's important for us right here. So, that's why... Uh, you know, I'm kind of laboring this point right here. I hope it's getting through with you guys. So one side of the precepts, those positive laws, you know, guard the temple, exercise authority, defeat the enemy, all of those things. But it also comes in the form of a negative commandment. And that's when God sets those limits on Adam and says to him, you can eat of any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat of this, and the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's another uh, covenant law. When you think about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there was nothing inherently wrong with it. It's not as if this was sort of an off-limit knowledge to man or that it uh, represented you know, man going beyond what he was supposed to know. There was nothing inherently wrong with it, but, yeah, ask questions. What's up? <laughs> so, because of, we know that God knows everything that's mm-hmm. going to happen. So, he already knew when he was giving this law to Adam, what Adam was going to do. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, absolutely. God saw the creator. He knew, absolutely, he knew that Jesus was going to come. He knew exactly how he was going to save his people. But one of the interesting things about um, this class, right, exactly, pointing us to Christ, one of the interesting things that we're looking at is, especially in this class, the way that God brings about 
his consummated kingdom in Christ. And it starts here in the garden. So even though God knew what was going to happen, he's still working through history in a way that brings himself glory. Do you have something to add, Don? Yeah, I just, the way that when you say, like, when we, it, it gets touchy when you talk, start to talk about God's, like, foreknowledge and his omniscience. And um, always, just because of the temptations I've seen in other types of theology that is not biblical or, or erroneous, it's always good to think of not only did he know, but he intended it. Like, he decreed it to take yeah. place. I'm not saying right. you're saying wrong, but I'm just, like, clarifying that he not only knew, but made that. Right. God yeah. had a plan from the beginning, and yeah. we're watching it unfold and living in it as it unfolds yeah. to as the glory. alternative, some people, like, some people think that he's reacting to people's decisions. Yeah. Like, like he, none he, of he, that. He it and then adjusts. So it's right. like, no, he yeah. intended from... Yeah. yeah, I'm not saying you said, I'm just generally speaking. Right, yeah. Well, as I was just trying to clarify it in my head. Yeah. Because I keep on, like, when things occur in my life, and then and I try to say, well, God's doing this because he wants to open my eyes to something. Right, understanding God's providence, that everything he's doing right. has a purpose and, right. you know, is intended to happen. Including here in in the garden. So, um, so for the precepts for the covenant law, you have the positive side. Adam is to live uh, and rule under God's authority as a priest, a prophet, and a king. And in the negative side, he is to obey God's command to refrain from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, that's essentially. The, those are the precepts of the covenant. That's the requirement that Adam has to meet in the terms of the covenant. Real quick, what were yeah. the functions of, I know you mentioned king and like his dominion over uh, Eden mm-hmm. and where he was at. What were the, just a, a one or two word description of the prophet and priest? Yeah, so this we talked a lot about last week um, and I can get you all that, but essentially as a priest, he was guarding the holy garden of God to make sure that nothing unclean would come into it. And as a prophet, um, he had to communicate the law of God to Eve first, and then to the serpent. And, um, yeah, that's essentially, you see in seed form those roles that then get much more sharp, much more clear, much more detailed later on in redemptive history. Um, but, again, we went in depth on that last week, so I can get you the outline and the audio and everything. Um so those are the precepts of the covenant. The promises of the covenant, that's the uh, the I will from God, right? That's what... Time out. I messed up. I knew I should have fixed my notes. I went out of order, and so I knew that I was going to move on too quickly. So rewind for a second. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Your outlines are in order. My... Notes are not in order, so... My brain's going so slow. That's all good. And after rewind, I'm still back here. (laughs) Perfect, perfect. That's what we need. Um, So, as we're talking about the precepts of the covenant, because this is really important, because I think even sometimes when we read the Genesis account and the garden and the fall and everything, sometimes it can seem 
I know we don't say this, but like, you know, isn't this a little bit harsh? They just ate of the fruit of the tree, like, and then all this curse and everything wrong in the world just from this one little sin. But it's so important for us to see this covenantal relationship between God and Adam and what the requirements actually were um, and that, that brought about the fall. And so as we're talking about the precepts, the covenant law, a crucial aspect of this, I want to stress this point, was Adam exercising dominion under God's authority, that he was um, to do it as a representative of God, not rogue, not on his own. And this is in part why God placed the tree off limits. Because I think we have some wrong ideas about the tree. Like, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it wasn't about this kind of lost innocence, like somehow we think it is, like, oh, all of a sudden they... You know, they they were aware of all these things that you know Adam and Eve were naive. Then they ate the tree and they were no longer naive, and they kind of saw the evil that was already there. It wasn't about that. Um, Isn't it just the one word you say, obey? Isn't well, it all about that? Right. They should have obeyed without any further explanation from God. Um, but even the purpose of the tree being there, some people say, why did God even ever put that tree there? Things like that. There's a specific purpose for it. Um, and so, again, one off limits because it, that's part of it. Absolutely. Um, it wasn't necessarily because it was about losing innocence. And it also wasn't about this kind of secret knowledge. That's how Satan tempted Eve, right? He said, no, God knows when you eat of this, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be like God. Man already was like God. He was created in the image of God. And so it's not about this sort of kind of secret Gnostic kind of off-limits knowledge, but rather the tree was more about God's ordained king passing right judgment about what is good and what is evil. It was about uh, Adam as God's representative king making right judgment between good and evil. I want you guys to turn to 1 Kings chapter 3 because... uh, this this idea of judging between good and evil is crucial for the kingship. And if you guys remember, um, you know Solomon, David's son, when God appeared to him at the beginning of his reign, and God said to Solomon, "Anything you ask of me, I'll give to you." Do you remember what Solomon asked for? He asked for wisdom. Exactly. First Kings three nine, Solomon says to God. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? So Solomon understood his duty as the king. Uh, The biggest thing about it, when Solomon could ask for anything, he could have asked for military strength to defeat the enemies, to defend his people. That's an important role of the kingship. He could have asked for many things. He asked for wisdom to discern between good and evil. Part of the king's responsibility was to be the good and righteous judge between what is good and what is evil. And here's the thing. In the garden, man knew what was good. Um, He had an undefiled conscience. He had the pure word of God. Adam knew what was good. And as soon as Satan opened his mouth and contradicted what God said... He should have known and discerned that's evil. It's evil to contradict the word of God. And so the tree of the knowledge of good and evil 
was, like you said, Nathan, a test, and it was man's opportunity to pronounce as a king with the authority of God right judgment between good and evil. So that's what it's about. The duty of Adam at the time of testing was to judge whether or not he would rule um, under the authority of God's word or according to his own ideas, his own wisdom, his own discernment and attempt to discern between good and evil. Does that make sense? So that's a central role of these covenant obligations uh, was for man to exercise that kingship and exercise that right judgment between good and evil and then to pronounce that judgment on the serpent. We talked about that last week, how Adam was to conquer the enemy, to defend the garden, to cast out Satan. And so there's the covenant law. And now we can move on to the promises that God makes, the I will, what God obligates himself to do in terms of the covenant. Um, and the, the ultimately the promise of God in this covenant is to bring man into full fellowship with himself, to bring about the consummated kingdom, like we talked about last week, to bring about that eternal Sabbath rest uh, that was set before man. And first of all, we can see these promises, because this is not people say, okay, where are these promises? Well, first of all, they're implicit, they're implied. When God says to Adam, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die, the implication of that means if you don't eat of this tree, if you obey God's law and commands, you will live, right? So there's that implicit promise of life for Adam's fulfillment of the covenant law. Um, we also, we talked a little bit about, that, about this last week. Um, the, the New Testament directly connects Adam and Jesus. Jesus is called the second Adam. And so we can look based on what Jesus accomplished for his people, the reward that he brings his people into, and we can uh, then kind of look back and say, okay, that was the reward set before Adam that Adam failed to bring us into. So, you know, we talk about Jesus. Jesus brings his people into the eternal Sabbath. Jesus uh, secures his people glory and righteousness and eternal life. All of that is what Adam fell short of. So before Adam, you have this promise of life, of eternal fellowship with God, Sabbath rest, all of that in the consummated kingdom, all the stuff that Christ accomplishes that Adam failed to accomplish. Um, and also, though, we see these promises uh, in especially the tree of life, which is kind of the, the sign or the sacrament of the covenant. And it's interesting to talk about covenant signs because generally they symbolize both the blessings of the covenant and the threatened cursings of the covenant. So we can even go back to the example of circumcision. Again, we'll talk more about this, but circumcision in the covenant with Abraham, it signified the blessing of the covenant in that if you were in that covenant, you were a people who were set aside, who were cut off from the rest of the world as holy. Right? They were the special people of God who were severed from the rest of the world, set apart as holy. But on the flip side, circumcision also uh, symbolized the threat of the covenant, that if you are unfaithful, you're going to be cut off from your people just as the flesh is cut off in circumcision. Baptism for us is similar. When we're baptized, that symbolizes the blessings of the new covenant that we have 
passed through the waters of judgment, that we have died with Christ and been raised with him, right? That's the blessings of the covenant. Simultaneously, it threatens the curses of the covenant that if you are unfaithful, if you're not truly in Christ, then you're going to be consumed by those waters of judgment. They're going to consume you the way that they consumed Pharaoh in Egypt, right? The way they consumed the earth during Noah's flood. Baptism is likened to those things. So um, that's what the covenant signs are there for. And so in the garden, we have the tree of life is the covenant sign. And it symbolized the blessings of the covenant, right? It was the pledge that God was going to reward Adam's covenant faithfulness with eternal life from which it was impossible to fall, right? He was going to bring Adam into this consummated state where there would be no danger of him falling short of glory and righteousness. And simultaneously, the tree of life signifies the covenant curse, which was being uh, denied access to it, right? That's, And we'll look a little bit later at the end of Genesis 3 where man is cast out of the garden and the angel guards the way to the tree of life. Um, that's the essence of the curse of the covenant is that we don't have access to the tree of life. That's what man needs. That's the eternity that's set in man's heart. And throughout scripture, you know, we talked last week about um, the end of Revelation, the vision of the consummated kingdom, and how there in the kingdom is the tree of life growing on both sides of the river and freely eat of the fruit of it. But even elsewhere in scripture, if you guys turn over to Ezekiel chapter 47, you really get this picture of the tree of life signifying eternity, um, eternal blessing, rest, all of these things. Um, Ezekiel 47, this is Ezekiel's vision of the heavenly temple, the heavenly Jerusalem. And in verse 12, it says, And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. And it doesn't say explicitly in there that this is the tree of life, but we know from that reference at the end of Revelation, where he's talking about the river that flows from the throne of God and the trees growing on both sides and the leaves are for the healing. That's the tree of life. And then if you flip over additionally, I know we're flipping a little bit, but this is just one verse in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2, um, now speaking of Christ, uh, you know, Christ says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So once again, there you have the tree of life as the symbol of this eternity, this paradise, this blessing for covenant faithfulness. And in Revelation it says it belongs to the one who conquers, right? to the one who fulfills the covenant obligations of being the conquering king on God's behalf. That's what Adam was called to be. The reward set before him was this eternal consummated state. Does that make sense? Any questions on that right now? Okay. Um, and so, more than anything... The tree of life 
um, symbolizes the blessings of the covenant and also the threatened curses of the covenant. And so we have, so far, delegation of dominion. Adam was given dominion and authority in God's kingdom. We have precepts. Adam was called to do specific things in covenant obedience to God. And we have promises. God promised, if Adam fulfilled these obligations, eternal life, consummated kingdom, Sabbath rest, all that symbolized in the tree of life. Um, and then next you have the threatened sanctions, right? This is These are the curses for unfaithfulness. So a covenant, you have the law, the promises, and then the sanctions. Again, this is really what formalizes a covenant. Without this, it's just an arrangement. But once you have the sanctions, that's what gives it teeth. That's what actually the means of enforcing the covenant law. Um, and the sanctions are very explicit. Chapter 2, verse 17. In the day that you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. Death is the threatened curse of the covenant. And this is, you know, we'll talk about this in a little bit more detail in a minute here, but this is comprehensive death. Like I mentioned, cut off from fellowship with God, alienation from the God of life, no access to the tree of life. Um, it is physical, eternal death being cast out of this garden temple of God. Um, that was the threatened curse of the covenant. And so the options before Adam, as God's covenant king, he would either rule under God by his law as a faithful servant, or he would be executed. And these are really the terms that we have to think about this in. You know, think about this in these kind of kingdom judicial terms. What happens if a king is openly disobedient and flagrantly rebellious against his master. He gets executed when he commits treason. Treason is a capital crime. That's the way we have to think of this relationship between God and Adam. God is the gracious overlord. Adam is his servant king. And if the servant king decides to stage an uprising and rebel against his lord, he's going to get executed. That's the arrangement. And again, like I said, the tree of life serves as a symbol of the covenant blessings, but also as the symbol of the threat that if you disobey, then your access to this tree is going to be cut off. You are no longer going to be able to partake of the fruit and the blessings of this tree. That is fundamentally the essence of the curse. The big problem is we don't have the tree of life. That signifies all the blessings. We're cut off from that. And so again, the sanctions formalize the covenant, and now we see the covenant coming into focus. So the covenant of life that God made with Adam is a works covenant. Remember in the first week we distinguished between a works covenant and a grace covenant. It's a works covenant because Adam was called to do some work, fulfill these obligations from God, and then upon fulfillment of those obligations, he would receive from God the promised blessings. If he failed, he would suffer the consequences. The formula for the covenant is do this and live, right? Clearly, Adam was responsible to do the works of this covenant. And then the other element of the covenant that I want to talk about is um, federal headship. Because that's another element that we see again and again throughout the covenants of Scripture is this idea of federal headship. Remember, in the first week, we defined that 
That is the one individual uh, whom God directly deals with, and he represents and acts on behalf of all those under his headship. This is a really important concept, and so I want to you know, make sure that we, we get it. Because this is where this is especially practically relevant for us today. Um, Adam was the covenant head over all of his natural offspring. God commanded Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with worshipers of God. Um, And it's assumed that once Adam passed this test with the tree, he fulfilled his covenant obligations, he receives the reward, that reward belongs to all of his offspring. All those image bearers who would fill the earth get the reward that Adam won. He represented all of his offspring in the garden. And then all of his offspring would have eternal life based on their connection to Adam if he faithfully fulfilled his covenant obligation. Um, And so we get this kind of, you know, we can infer this from the situation in Genesis but it is explicitly spelled out for us in the New Testament. So I do want you guys to turn over to Romans 5. We're going to read um, a little bit lengthier of a passage in Romans 5 because, again, it's, it's implied in the garden, in the Genesis account, that you know Adam, he's commanded to have offspring. He's the representative of his offspring. If he succeeds, then the blessings flow to him and to all of his offspring. If he fails, then the curses likewise flow to him and to all of his offspring. But specifically in the New Testament, we have this spelled out. So Romans chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 14 through 21. And Paul writes this, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And if the free gift is not like the result of that one man's trespass, for the judgment following one man's trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will the grace, uh, will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So you have there this explicit connection and this comparison of Adam and Christ. And we're told that it was through one man's trespass, because of one man's trespass, that many were made sinners, that death came into the world. The reason why we are in a fallen condition is because Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, because he was our representative. You get the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. You don't have to turn there. Just one verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 21, I want to point out. Uh, It says... For as by a man came death, 
by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. So you have this explicit connection drawn that it was through Adam, because of Adam, that many died, that death reigned in Adam, and so that all die. And so you have here the uh, explanation of Adam as the federal covenant head of all of his natural offspring. And so every single human being born uh, is born into the covenant of life in terms of the covenant of life with Adam as our federal head. Does that make sense? Every person born is born under the administration of this covenant that God made with Adam. And Adam is our representative head. Therefore, every person born is born under the covenant sanctions, born under the penalty of total inescapable death. Does that make sense? I know that was kind of a lot to process. Um, Additionally, something for us to understand, it's going to be really important for us going through this class to make sure we kind of keep our thinking straight. Adam is specifically likened to Christ, um, and there's nobody else like these two. So even though there's going to be different covenants, we're going to talk about Abraham and Noah and Moses and David and all the rest, there's nobody in the same category as Adam and Jesus. Um, all the other covenants throughout Scripture are temporary or they transmit kind of temporal, worldly blessings and things like that. But the covenant with Adam and the covenant with Christ, these two both have a bearing on eternity. They're the only ones that are relevant when it comes to the final state, judgment before God and our eternal life or death. Either, ultimately, on the last day, we're going to stand before God with Adam as our federal head or with Jesus as our federal head. That's it. Two categories of people. People in Adam or people in Christ. So either we'll be under the eternal curse of the covenant of life in Adam or under eternal life in the new covenant with Christ. Um, and so I hope all that makes sense. That's important for us moving forward. Adam is made federal head over all of his natural offspring and because of his fall everybody born is born under the curse of this covenant there's no repentance for Adam no there's no not in terms of the covenant of life that's a good question so salvation for everybody including Adam has always been in Jesus Christ and we're going to see in just a minute here how God promises that he's going to do something to, uh, for redemption, that everybody is born guilty and condemned, but God is going to say, he makes a promise that he is going to do something about that. He gives uh, a, a source of hope in the promise of Christ. But no, in terms of this covenant, Adam couldn't go back and get a do-over and try to, you know, fulfill his obligations faithfully this time. He's guilty. He's condemned. Now, he's on the same terms as the rest of us. Adam and everybody else saved only by faith in the promises of God, trust in Christ as he is presented at the time. So, remember, we talked about how Christ is uh, revealed as a mystery. So, at the time of Adam, 
we're going to see here in Genesis 3.15, he gets a tiny shimmer of the light of Christ, a little tiny unveiling of that mystery. Adam, by exercising faith in that promise, could be saved, could repent, be redeemed in Christ just the way that we are. No works necessary. But in terms of this covenant, the verdict is passed. The judgment comes. Adam's guilty. No going back from that. Does that make sense? Yeah, so you're you're really separating out the covenant. Exactly. Exactly. Because we need to be able... Because again, we understand with us, we're born guilty. We have no chance of fulfilling any work or doing any obligation to make ourselves righteous. But we can repent and trust in Christ. Adam also could repent and trust in Christ, just that the Christ, as he understood it, was very, very minimal amount of life, but faith in that promise was sufficient for Adam to be made righteous. And again, as we go through, that's going to be unveiled more and more. Um, But, so no, there was no way that Adam could make himself righteous, but he could be made righteous through Christ, just the way that we are. He's in the same boat as us, after he sinned. And so, I do want to talk a little bit with the time that we have left about specifically Adam's failure and um, the judgment that's pronounced on him because it is intense. Um, Again, Adam, as the servant king of God, was to emerge victorious in a confrontation with the enemy in the name of God. Think about Jesus in the wilderness, right? When Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, Jesus was called to... Uh, defeat Satan the enemy in the wilderness under God's authority for the glory of God. Um, um, and Jesus ultimately does do this. Adam failed to do this, right? We've talked about this. Adam failed to exercise his authority. He failed to defeat the enemy. He failed to do his kingly duty to cast out Satan. And so, um, he Adam's failure was profound. He abdicated his authority, right? He refused to take up arms against Satan. And when it came to, like I mentioned before, that judging between good and evil, that choice was presented to him, whether or not he was going to submit himself to the word of God, what he knew from God's mouth to be good, or if he was going to trust in his own discernment to judge between good and evil. Ultimately, what Adam did, remember, Think of it in terms of you know, government and, and kings and, and servants. Adam was covenantally bound as the servant king of God. And what he did when he did not cast out Satan, when he let Eve take of the fruit and eat it, and when he took it and ate, what he did was betray his covenant Lord and instead side with the enemy. That's what Adam did. He sided with Satan. He sided with the enemy instead of saying no this is the word of my Lord. You get out of here, serpent. Instead, he took of the fruit. He ate of it. Or Eve took of the fruit and ate of it. She gave it to Adam. He ate of it. They placed themselves in league with Satan. And also, it's worth noting, too, Kathy, you asked about repentance. Initially, right after this, 
Adam and Eve exercised no remorse and no repentance. What did they do right away? It says that their eyes were open, they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together to make uh, covering for themselves. They didn't exercise. It's not as if they ate the fruit and they said, oh my goodness, what did we do? Confess their sin to God and ask God to be merciful to them. Instead, they... Remember last week, we talked about Adam when he was to name all the creation, all the animals. A big part of that was discerning what the creation was for, what these creatures were for, what was their function, and naming them based on that. Adam and Eve, they take the fig leaves and they use nature for something that it was not intended for. They use that to make a covering for their sin, to try to cover up their guilt. And really, if you think about idolatry today, you know, Isaiah talks about how a man will cut down a tree, and for part of that tree, he uses it what it was made for, right? To make a fire, to cook his food, to warm himself. But for another part of that tree, he takes it and he builds an idol and he bows down to it, and he looks to that idol, that piece of nature, to save him, to cover his sin, to make him righteous. That's what Adam and Eve did. They took those fig leaves and they tried to use those pieces of nature to cover up their sin and to make them righteous. So there was no repentance there. And then um, you have this immediate judgment. And it's really interesting. So in verse 8, it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Um, What does that make you think of? They heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Uh, I think our mind sort of tends to go to all right, here's God. He's just kind of out enjoying the beautiful garden, taking it all in. God's you know, out for his evening stroll, and Adam doesn't show up, and God asks Adam, where are you? That's not what's happening at all. Um, it's really interesting. So if you have the ESV, in my Bible, right next to the word cool, there's a footnote. And that footnote says that the Hebrew word there is actually better translated wind, But another translation for that would be spirit, right? Oftentimes the word spirit, wind, breath, it's all kind of the same word in the original language, but it is translated differently based on the context. And I don't want to get too deeply into this tonight, but there are some theologians, and I really think I lean towards this, who would say that a better translation, instead of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, is God walking in the garden in the spirit of the day? Because what you have here, throughout the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, when you hear the sound of the Lord, that is a horrifying, terrifying thing. You remember at Mount Sinai when the people of Israel heard the sound of the Lord and they covered their ears and they couldn't bear to hear it and they asked God to stop talking to them because they couldn't bear to hear the sound. Or you hear about, Um, You know, in the Psalms, right, the earth quakes at the sound of the Lord, that his voice shakes the foundations of the earth. Or in Revelation, when, when we see the vision of Christ as the conquering king, it says that his voice was like the sound of many waters. So the sound of God is not pleasant. It's terrifying. It's overwhelming. And also, when it talks about the day, the day of the Lord uh, or you know the yeah, the the day of the Lord's visitation, 
especially in the Old Testament, is always a day of judgment, and it's terrifying. You hear the prophets talk about the great and terrible day of the Lord, this terrifying day of visitation when God is going to come and judge the earth. And even under the New Covenant, we're in Christ, so we look forward to the day of the Lord, but we know that's going to be a terrifying day when you hear the sound of the trumpet and every eye sees the Lord Jesus Christ and he comes in judgment of the earth. And so what we have here is not God going for a nice, quiet walk through the garden, but we have God thundering into the garden, prepared to judge his covenant servant. And when he says to Adam, where are you? It's not a question as if God is ignorant, but he is summoning Adam to the judgment seat. He's calling his covenanted king to give an account of how he exercised his authority. Does that make sense? He's confronting it, absolutely, big time. And so that's the scene. It's not pleasant. It's not, you know, nice and gentle. It is a frightening scene of judgment. And we know, and we'll mention here tonight, that in the midst of this curse that God pronounces, in the midst of this judgment, there are elements of grace. But I think that oftentimes we're too quick to point out God's grace in the midst of this curse, that we miss the curse. Because remember, this is this is the curse that we're living under today. This is the curse that consigns us as guilty before God. This is the curse that's going to send us to hell if we're not in Christ. And so we can't downplay the severity of this judgment. And I think also, you know, God says you will surely die. He doesn't walk that back. This isn't kind of a watered-down version of the curse. God cannot deny himself. He cannot break his covenant. This is the full-fledged curse of the covenant that he pronounces on Adam. And so to get the full effect, I want us to um, look at it in reverse order of the way that we have it. So just look real quick. I know we're getting short on time, but I want to look at this real quick. Um, Genesis 3, 22 through 24 um, God says, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand, take of the tree of life, and eat it, and live forever. Therefore, God sent him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and placed the cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. God does to man what man was supposed to do to Satan. Drove him out of that garden. Kicked him out of there. Cut off access to the tree of life. That's eternal death right there. Not being able to eat from the tree of life is eternal death, spiritual death, suffering in hell, the second death, whatever you want to call it, like it says in Revelation. That's what that is. The fact that man is cut off from access to the tree of life, is kicked out of God's presence, alienated from God, that's the curse. That is, you know, God doesn't say you will immediately die, but he says you will surely die. And it's comprehensive, total spiritual death. And so that's that right there, getting kicked out of the garden, cut off from the tree of life. Then, uh, if you go up to verse 19, he says to Adam, um, You will return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There we have physical death. Man was not created to die. We were created to live forever. Death is unnatural. And... Adam's body was not created to decay and to fall apart and to turn into dust, but that's what happens to us, right? We 
have all sorts of problems with our physical bodies. Eventually, they just break down. They stop working. We get buried in the ground, and it doesn't even stop there. We don't just remain a shell, but we disintegrate and turn into dust. That's the curse. That's the curse um, of the covenant that God made. What's that? We don't have that because uh, if we have Jesus, we go straight up to heaven. Well, if we have Jesus, we have the resurrection. Yes. But even still, physical death, physical death, our bodies die. Absolutely. And so there's that element of the curse. It's spiritual death, then there's physical death. And then even if you go back up, um, verses 16 through 18, the initial curse pronouncements on the woman and the man, where he says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. And then he says to Adam, um, curses the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you. Another element of the curse, it's not immediate death. And in fact, in some ways, immediate death might have been a better deal for man, right? I mean, there's, uh, instead of that, God says to man, well, you are going to die eventually, but in the meantime, you still are to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue the earth, have dominion over it. You're still to work. You're still to have children, but that's going to be extremely painful. And sometimes when you work on the fruit of the ground, you know, it's it's going to uh, take a toll on your body. This is going to be gruesome, toilsome, hard work, and you're going to spend your life doing all this hard work, and then you're going to die, and then when you die, you're going to be away from me for all eternity. That's the curse, and we can't skip past that because we're eager to get to the grace parts. But in the midst of this severe, absolutely just curse, there is grace. Um, Part of the grace is that there will still be children, right? He says to Eve, I'll multiply your pain in childbearing, but you're still going to have children. And so there will still be life propagated. Now that life is under a curse. Um, There's pain in the childbearing. There is, um, sometimes childbearing doesn't work. There's death, there's failure, all those sorts of things. But life goes on. With Adam, even though there's pain in working the ground, he's still going to eat from the fruit of the ground. So God is still going to provide for us. He's still going to sustain man's life by giving him food. might not always be enough. There might be scarcity. There might be uh, other issues. But there's still food. So in the midst of the curse, you still have um, elements of blessing. Life will continue. Um, But of course, most of all... In the curse, look at verse 15. He says to Satan, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And Kathy, this is what you were asking about, the the repentance, the redemption that God does promise. So in the midst of the curse, there's the promise of ultimate victory for man. Even though right now he is defeated and cursed and dead and all the rest of it, there's still the promise of ultimate victory. That the enemy with whom Adam sided, right? Adam went on the side of the enemy. That he was going to be defeated by the seed of the woman. By a promised offspring who God was going to bring into the world. That Adam, who failed to crush the serpent, 
was not going to be the last king, was not going to be the last covenant head, but there would be another king who would come and who would succeed in crushing the serpent whom Adam failed to crush. And so even, um, and even again, the gracious element of God providing a proper covering for Adam and Eve. They tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. God slaughtered the animals and gave their skins to Adam and Eve as a proper covering for their guilt and shame. So you have those elements of grace, um, but the one that I want us to keep in mind, it's going to be the whole narrative, the thread that runs through Scripture, is that promise in verse 15 that God is going to bring this offspring into the world. And what that is, in seed form, see, immediately when Adam sinned, that was the burden of the covenant of life. It's closed, right? There's no, there will never be another opportunity for man to fulfill some sort of covenant law to earn life and blessing like Adam had. So we're born, we're born guilty. That's the verdict. Nothing can change that. And so immediately, in verse 15, there's a shift in focus away from the covenant of life and to this promise that God was going to do something different with a new king. And what this is, is the promise of the new covenant. And one thing to keep in mind, keep this straight as we go through this class. This promise here is not itself the new covenant. God doesn't make the new covenant here and now in the garden, but he promises that he is going to do that. And so it's... Uh, it's a glimmer of hope. It's the first little bit of unveiling of the mystery of Christ. Um, and so that's what we're going to kind of follow now throughout history. So the covenant of life, God makes it with Adam. Adam fails. He's guilty. We're all guilty. But now God promises, I'm going to bring an offspring into the world. He's going to crush that serpent that you, Adam, didn't crush. And that's now, from here on out, that's where man's hope lies. And so next week, we're going to start talking about Noah. And Noah's really interesting. There's so much in Noah that we don't think of when it comes to redemptive history. So that's where we're going to go with this next week. Do you guys have any closing questions or anything? Wonderful. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you uh, for your great promises. And Lord... I do pray that we would feel the weight and the conviction of our sin, Lord, that we are guilty and that we are deserving of all of the curses, all of the pain and suffering and death that we suffer in this life. And Lord, we deserve so much worse. But Father, you have been so gracious and you not only made promises, but you have fulfilled them in the covenant of Christ. And Lord, I do pray that with all of this class, all of this study that we're doing, that you would be building up and solidifying our faith in that covenant, in your faithfulness to do exactly as you have promised to do. Lord, we thank you that you have sent your conquering king into the world and that in him we are more than conquerors. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.